0: in one of our previous churches, one of our members was being transferred to another community, and before leaving, he wanted to donate something significant to the church. Since he was from a country where Christians are persecuted, he presented us with this incredible portrait depicting Jesus Christ. It was created by an artist from that part of the world. The image was quite Impactful. It stood six feet tall, four feet wide, and it took two years to complete. Amazingly, the artist drew this picture using every word in the New Testament. Well, you can't see it from there. At the top left corner is the word "the" for the Gospel Book of Matthew. Bottom right is the word "Amen." That's how the Bible ends in the book. Of Revelation. He used shading and other te- techniques, but the picture was stunning. Surrounding the portrait of Jesus are 27 angels depicting the books of the New Testament. Now, we were grateful for this gift, but we struggled where to put it. And the first place we chose made us uncomfortable because, well, we were concerned, frankly, that people might start worshiping the image. So we decided to move it to a hallway Later, when we renovated our facility, we relocated it to the Life Center. The next day, I was blindsided by a phone call from a longtime church member who was extremely upset. This is a summary of what this individual said I don't know if I can remain a member because you've removed Jesus. From my church Well, I was greatly grieved by that comment. I mean, somehow, she had equated an artist's image with Jesus himself. Images are powerful, aren't they? For instance, how many of us think of Jesus with fair skin, long blonde hair and blue eyes? As a Jewish man from the Middle East, he likely had darker skin, dark hair, and brown eyes. Beth and I have a couple images indelibly etched on our minds from when we served as missionaries in Mexico City. As part of our attempt to understand the culture, when we were out and about in the city and we'd see a church, we would go into the church if it was open and we'd just make observations Now, I'll never forget one day, it was shortly after we arrived, we went into a church, walked in, we're walking down toward the front of the church, and about 40 feet high was a statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe. As we got closer, we noticed a statue of Jesus about two feet high down at her feet. We both wept. We were in Mexico City for three years, and while there, we were grieved, frankly, by all the attention given to the Virgin and depicted through statues and paintings. In early December, each year, hundreds of thousands of people make pilgrimages to the Basilica in Mexico City from all over the country, many of them crawling on their knees. Beth and I have been to the shrine to Mary on several occasions. We've observed people climbing the rough cement stairs on their knees, leaving stains of blood behind. Worshippers can't wait to get inside to kneel before the supposed image of the Lady of Guadalupe imprinted on a cloak. Now, let me be quick to say, please understand, I am not a Catholic basher. That's my heritage, and I care deeply for those who are Catholic. But it must be clearly said, Mary has no place in our redemption. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus that you and I can have forgiveness of sin and open access to God the Father. Mary is not a co-redemptorist. She's not a mediator. She needed to have her sins forgiven just like we do. And so let's make sure we not give to Mary the worship that belongs only To Jesus. We come today to the second commandment. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able and let's read God's word out loud together. Beginning in verse 4, we're in Exodus chapter 20. Let's read together. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thanks for reading together. You can have a seat. Let's make some observations. First of all, this command does not forbid all religious works of art. After all, there are two golden cherubim angels carved into the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. There were angelic images woven into the temple curtains. There's nothing wrong with religious art unless the symbol becomes the substitute. Well, that happened in Israel's history In Numbers chapter 21, God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent, but later, 2 Kings 18.4, the people started worshiping it as an idol. Second observation, this commandment is very similar to the first commandment. So the first commandment deals with whom we worship. There's only one God. This commandment deals with how we worship. Philip Ryken says it like this. The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. The second has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. Next, this is one of the longest commandments. Next, this commandment is repeated the most in the Bible. Well, some of us, as we look at this commandment, we're like, I got to pass on this one. This one's pretty easy to keep. Uh, By the time we're finished, we're going to see we're more likely to break this one than we might think. Next, God's people broke this commandment throughout their history. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals the battle between worshiping God properly and worshiping images of idols. It was the sin, the sin of adultery, that caused both Israel and Judah to be exiled. A case could be made that idolatry is the most punished sin in the entire Bible. Final observation, this is the only commandment with both a punishment and a promise. So let's review the commandments. We put them on a bookmark. It's right in front of you. If you don't have one yet, I encourage you to pull one out, take it with you, and use this as a way to memorize the Ten Commandments. So this week on the Edgewood Facebook page, I made a post. I put a picture of a couple of these bookmarks, and I said, anyone willing this weekend to stand up and quote the Ten Commandments? It was Crickets. I mean, it was just silent. So I wonder, anyone willing to do it? I'll do it with you. Anybody willing to stand up and try it? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, I'm going to try it, but you need to help me, okay? So I'm going to close my eyes because I know what you're thinking. There's a screen in the back that I can read. But, <laughs> so I'm going to close my eyes. You help me if I get stuck. Commandment number one, one God. Commandment number two, no God. Commandment number three, revere his name. Commandment number four, remember to rest. Commandment number five, honor parents. So we're halfway there. Commandment number six, no murder. Commandment number seven, no adultery. Commandment eight, no stealing. Commandment number nine, no lying. Commandment 10, no coveting. I did it. Now, listen, I'm not looking for any applause, because by the end of this series, I want every one of us to be able to do that. You're like, oh, I can't memorize. Yes, you can. These are just short phrases, and I want us to not only know the Ten Commandments, but to grow in our love and respect for them. Man, last weekend, Pastor Kyle did a super job reminding those of us who are parents and grandparents to love God and to live out our faith so that our children and our grandchildren can do the same. Two weeks ago, we learned God doesn't want to just be important. He wants to be everything. He doesn't desire to be prominent in our lives. No, the Lord demands to be preeminent. We summarized it this way, if God is not Lord of all, uh, he's not your Lord at all. So as we look at the second commandment, we're going to see a prohibition, and we're going to focus on the person behind this commandment, and then the punishment for breaking it, and the promise of this commandment. So let's begin. The unconditional prohibition is very clear. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That phrase shall not means don't ever do it. Oh, would you observe the words you and yourself? That's there for emphasis. Those are emphatic, meaning each and every one of us individually must avoid making images. Now perhaps you grew up with this translation or perhaps you're you're using this translation that says graven images. That word graven simply means carved or chiseled or cut. It has the idea of being man-made. That's reinforced in Exodus 34, 17. Do not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So at its core, let me see if I can bring this commandment into one sentence. This commandment is a prohibition against creating something with your hands, watch this, or your heart that either reduces or replaces God. This commandment covers everything the heavens, the earth, and the sea. That means we're prohibited from worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, Mother Earth, birds, fish, crocodiles, and the Chicago Bears. I know that was a low blow. Well, notice how progressive idol worship is. Shall not make, shall not bow down, or serve. Listen, once you build an idol, you'll bow down to it. When you work at making an idol, you'll worship it. When you surrender to that idol, you'll start serving that idol. Now, the true God of Israel has no physical image because he is spirit. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Here's why. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, Horeb's a name for all the mountains and Sinai is one of those mountains. So the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Jesus expanded on this, John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Yahweh is invisible, and he cannot be contained which is in stark contrast to the pantheon of gods worshipped by the pagan countries around the Israelites. In order to capture now how quickly this commandment was broken, if you have your Bible with you, just turn over to Exodus chapter 32. A little more than a month after receiving the Ten Commandments, 40 days later, The people are getting restless. Why? Because Moses is up in the mountain and they don't know what's happened to Moses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, how do you think God responded? Uh, you don't have to look far. Verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Moses then confronts his brother Aaron, and this is the lamest excuse you're ever going to hear. Check this out. So I said to them, this is Aaron speaking, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) He's like, I don't know how it happened. The calf just came out. In her book, Ten Words to Live By, Jen Wilkin writes this. Think about the enormity of the lie the golden calf tells. It is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location-bound, but God is everywhere, fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees, he hears, and he speaks. Oh, there's so much more to be said in this chapter. I I just wrote down a couple additional thoughts. Number one, Aaron crafted the golden calf as an image of God who brought Israel out of Egypt. It doesn't appear he was deliberately trying to worship a false god. Secondly, this idolatry led to unbridled immorality. Would you note the phrase, rose up to play? To read more about that, read Romans chapter 1. Thirdly, God punished the people with a plague. This was a serious deal to God. 24,000 people had their lives extinguished because of it. And Aaron's sin of idol worship had a long-lasting effect in Israel. It was like a skeleton in their collective closet that kept popping up. So fast forward, several hundred years later, Jeroboam instituted idol worship, but he doubled the golden calf to make two golden calves. Second Chronicles eleven fifteen. 15, he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and for the calves that he had made. Nine years ago, Beth and I had the privilege to be in Israel and we stood right on the spot where those golden calves were worshipped. It was creepy to know that God's holy people bowed down to golden calves right there. Now here's some reasons why God prohibits his people from bowing down to idols. Number one, every picture or image falls short of capturing God in his totality. So imagine a friend comes up to you and he says, you know, I don't want to ever forget what you look like. And so I'm going to put a picture of a centipede up on my wall. And that's going to help me remember who you are. You'd be like, "What? What are you talking about?" Likewise, nothing a human can create can ever match the immensity of our creator. Images always diminish. They subtract, they obscure, they limit the Lord. Isaiah forty twenty five. God asks a question, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? J.I. Packer writes, the heart of the objection to pictures and images is that they inevitably conceal, if not all of the truth, conceal most, if not all of the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being whom they represent. Secondly, when you create an idol, you're putting yourself in a position of sovereignty over the idol. Some of us do this when we sit with our arms crossed in judgment of God. When we're like, God, I don't like what you did. God, how dare you allow something like that to happen in my life? I appreciate Anne Lamont's insight. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Yeah, I'll move on from that one. (laughs) Next, images end up putting God in a box. Our caricatures create expectations of what God should do for us. In short, many of us want to control God. We'd rather serve the God we want not the God who is. Idol worship is absurd. I love Isaiah 44. We read of a carpenter who carefully chooses some wood. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. But you know what he does with the other part of the chunk of wood? He makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol. He falls down before it. He prays to that piece of wood and he says, Deliver me, for you are my God. How absurd. Well, next, because our hearts are idol factories, we long for something to worship. You know, we're prone to praise a picture, submit to a statue, invest our lives in an image, all in a search for that which we think will ultimately satisfy us. Finally, this command also forbids inadequate images of God in our minds. Listen, our idols today are more inside ourselves than they are up on our shelves. Our struggle is more with mental images than of metal images. One commentator refers to this as ideolatry. We worship ideas. Here's how we do it. When we focus on just one palatable attribute of God, like his love, but we don't want to hear anything about his holiness or his wrath or his justice. Have you ever said something like this? My God wouldn't do that or this. Oh, I like to think of God as, and fill in the blank, how you like to think of him. Or even this one. You probably don't say this one out loud, but perhaps it's come into your mind. Well, after all, God wants me to be happy, so he'll understand my immorality. Yikes, yeah. Listen, these images might not be carved into stone, but they're indelible in our imaginations. After all, the word image is related to imagination, We tend to focus on things we like about God and forget the rest. Well, after clarifying this command, God quickly reveals his person. Check out the middle part of verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. This command is tied to his name. He is Yahweh, our God. He is the self-existent one. Would you notice, not only is it tied to his name, it's tied to his nature. Because of who he is, you and I must do what he says. Leviticus 26.1, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. And we're given the reason, for I am the lord your god god refers to himself here as a jealous god you might be pushing back at that like what and we tend to view jealousy with negative connotations but but actually the hebrew refers to warmth of feelings zeal or heat So properly understood, biblically understood, God has a burning, passionate love for his people. He doesn't want to see us bail on him and fall down before false idols or fall into disbelief. His jealousy is right and righteous. He is fully committed to us, and therefore he expects us to be fully committed to him. He is jealous for our undivided attention, for our wholehearted allegiance to him. Here's what I wrote down. Because he is intensely zealous for his people, he is jealous to protect his property. See, when we give... All of our love, all of our allegiance to another person, another possession, another place, his passion is ignited. Exodus 34 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is what? You thought of God's name as jealous? It's one of his names. Psalm 78, 58, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Well, let's dive a little deeper here. In the Bible, God is pictured as being married to Israel. As such, he has every right to be jealous for their affection and to long for their uncompromising commitment to him. The Almighty sees idolatry as spiritual adultery you go well that's strong yeah Bible's filled with it God refers to his own people as adulterous why because of their unfaithfulness In the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, he tells Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman. Why? In order to give an object lesson about how God feels about Israel's spiritual infidelity. Now, because of God's jealous and zealous person, we read next that he punishes those who break this command. This is a sober truth. It's found right in verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The word visiting refers to searching or paying attention. Iniquity means twisted or perverted. Idolatry, then, is a perverted and twisted turning away from God which can generate consequences that cascade generationally this is one of the most frightening verses i know because my unholiness can become contagious to my children and my grandchildren to my four daughters and our five grandchildren listen if you worship an idol your kids your great-grandkids may end up paying the price Parents, the decisions you're making right now will affect the next 100 years. Long after we're gone. Our children and great-grandchildren can suffer consequences linked to our sins. Oh, let me just give you one example. There are many. After Aaron led the people into idolatry, we later read about what happened to his two sons. Leviticus 10, Nadab, and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. As a result, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and vaporized them. Aaron compromised and broke God's commands. His son did the same and suffered the consequences. Let me be quick to say, parents, some of you have wayward children. You have prodigal children. I don't mean to pile any guilt or any shame on you, God is gracious, and the decisions they're making are their decisions. But the manner in which you live can mark your children and your grandchildren because they tend to resemble the environment they're exposed to. So if a parent practices lying and deception, children can grow up as liars. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. Child lives with ridicule he learns to withdraw if a child lives with shame he learns to feel guilty if a child lives with superficial faith he learns to view faith as insignificant if a child sees his parents bowing to representations of god that child might conclude that those representations are god and if a child grows up in a home where worship is not a priority Well, worship will be an option seldom chosen. Now, that's not to deny individual responsibility or make you feel like you're stuck in a cycle of sin because your parents or your grandparents made bad choices. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the bondage breaker? Many of you today are starting a new spiritual family tree. I love the promise found in Ezekiel 18, 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Number four, we see a promise in this command. God is so gracious. Verse six, but showing steadfast love to thousands. Some of your translations say thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my promise commandments. The word but shows a contrast to the punishment, the consequences of sin. God shows which means he accomplishes. So his steadfast love goes to thousands of generations. That phrase steadfast love refers to his covenant commitment. It's often translated as mercy or loving kindness. The Lord's loyal love is celebrated 26 times. In Psalm 136, would you note the promise is more powerful than the punishment? The blessing doesn't just last three or four generations, but for thousands. God's mercy is magnified. It's exponentially multiplied more than his judgment. I'm reminded of a line from one of my new favorite songs. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Question, why would you want to bow before an image of an idol when God delights in bestowing his steadfast love on those who love him? Now, while there's punishment, there's also a promise for those who love God. This command contains a clear prohibition. It calls us to look at the person of God. We're warned about the punishment, and we're warmed by the promise Let's focus now on how we can apply this commandment right here in our context. It might get a little uncomfortable. Number one, surrender to God whether or not you like what he does. One person writes this, God will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. God wants us to trust him and obey him, not use him. Matt Smethurst writes, if God never confuses you, troubles you, or disagrees with you, then you're not staring at transcendence, you're staring at the mirror. Number two, this might surprise you. Be careful about covetousness and greed. Colossians 3.5 equates greed with idolatry. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, that's the 10th commandment, which is idolatry. And one of the best ways uh, to, to not worship the God of mammon, money, or the idol of affluence is to give back to God what he's given to you. Number three, eradicate all idols from your life an idol can be defined as anything besides god which becomes a controlling obsession in your life let me ask three questions that might help us determine if there's some idol adoration going on question one do i want this too much number two has this become too important to me Number three, how would I feel if this were suddenly taken away from me? You know, most of us have an idol in our hand, in our pocket, or in our purse every hour of every day. Experts have identified a new condition. They say it affects our mental health. They have a new name for it, nomophobia, no mobile phone phobia. It's the fear of not being with your phone. The question has your iPhone or Android become an idol? You see, as we bow down and when we're not looking at it enough, the notifications come to get us to bow down. Do you want me to just move on from here? It's getting a little, (laughs) I'm going to move on. In Acts chapter 19, some new believers burned their books because those books were leading them astray. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them. They knew it was going to cost them something. They found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. But listen to this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When they got rid of that which was keeping them from God, the gospel spread widely and grew in power. There might be a cost to eradicating an idol in your life. Do you know what the value of those books are in today's money? $10,000. dollars They burned. Because they're like, those are evil books. That passage means a lot to me personally. Because as a new believer at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, saved out of a life of partying, I read that passage. And I looked at my album collection. You guys remember albums? Vinyl. And I saw Black Sabbath. Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Van Halen, and I broke them. I don't know what that is for you, but you better eradicate that idol or it'll end up controlling your life. I appreciate Elizabeth Elliott's insight. Check this. The Christian life is a process of God breaking our idols one by one, <laughs> are you ready to weed out those things that get in the way of true worship? Number four, become intentional about your parenting or your grandparenting. Determine to intentionally disciple your children and grandchildren. A couple weeks ago, our daughter Lydia sent us a picture. Lydia lives out in Virginia with her husband Jamie, and they were on their way to church And when I saw this picture, I started weeping because here's my son-in-law out front walking into church with our grandson Ezra. Isn't that a cute backpack, by the way? What's he doing? He's following Dad. And who's in the stroller? Little Simeon, who's pushing the stroller Lydia, who's next to the stroller, little Pip. But it's dad making sure they're gathering to worship. Images are powerful. I saw an image a couple weeks ago. I can't get out of my mind, and I hope I never get it out of my mind. It's a picture of a grandpa holding hands with his grandson and imprinted. Over both of them is an hourglass. If you look, the grandpa doesn't have much sand left. The grandson has a lot of time left. Here's the idea. We're to pass along God's truth before we pass on. Watch yourself carefully because others are watching be intentional about introducing the next generation to the gospel. In her book called Gold Cord, missionary Amy Carmichael tells of Prina, a young Indian girl who became a Christian. She had never seen a picture of Jesus before. One day she received a package from abroad. She opened it eagerly and pulled out a picture of Jesus. Prina innocently asked who it was, and she was told it was Jesus, and when she was told that, she burst into tears. What's wrong, they asked. Why are you crying? Little Prina's reply says it all. I thought he was far more beautiful than that. Listen, whatever image you have in your mind of Jesus, he's more beautiful than that. And we don't need a visual representation of God because Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 adds he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Genesis 1.26 and 27 says that you are made in the image of God. But because of sin, that image is marred beyond measure. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, kept the second commandment. He kept all the commandments, and then he took our punishment by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead on the third day. He promises to be faithful to thousands of generations, to those who repent and receive him into their lives. And if you're ready to be saved right now, you could pray a prayer like this. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. You could pray along quietly. Jesus, I'm busted. I not only don't keep your commandments. There are many times I don't even want to. And I confess that I've been bowing before that which will never satisfy. I've been seeking satisfaction from those things that can't satisfy. And Lord, I call that sin. That's what you call it. I repent. I turn from that. And I turn to you. Thank you for bridging the divide between my unholy behavior and a holy God. I believe you paid the price for my sins when you died on the cross. You showed your power by rising from the dead on the third day. And I now receive you as my Savior, my Mediator, my Lord. Jesus, come into my life and lead me to follow you faithfully as your disciple. From now on, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.